welcome to Gravity, a podcast on world social, political and cultural issues. Today's podcast takes a look at the immigration system of the United States. The acceptance of immigrants from diverse nations has been one of the greatest tools the United States has had to develop itself into a dominant world power, but does it currently have a system that allows it to reap the talent and skills it needs from around the world? Over the next decades, climate change, by the increase in intensity of stochastic events such as cyclones and floods, destroying large tracts of arable land and rising sea levels, which may swallow whole islands and whole swaths of major cities in our lifetime, will lead to more and more refugees and asylum seekers. Does the U.S. have the institutional tools to accept its share of refugees and asylum seekers? Lastly, we take a look at undocumented workers, employment law, and state action on immigration. To discuss these issues and more, I have Jasmine Singh, an immigration attorney at Arufat Garcia, PLLC, and Amanda Emerson, immigration attorney with Yadin Law Group, LLC, in New York. Welcome, Jasmine and Amanda. Let's begin our discussion with asylum. Emma Lazarus's words are enshrined on Lady Liberty, asking for the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. Is the U.S. currently welcoming of asylum seekers, and do we have enough categories to accommodate all the people that are in need of asylum? We don't do a lot of asylum. Um, we have been coming up across an issue lately, though, where a lot of these uh, unaccompanied children who are flooding across the borders from Honduras, from Guatemala, um, the problem now is that you actually can't, you would think that those people would be eligible for asylum, but, and actually Jasmine did some research on this recently, is that the courts are actually saying everybody is getting like persecuted in those countries, so nobody is. It's like there's so much, so many problems in those countries that you can't say that your particular client is being targeted because of something specific to them. Um, because an asylum claim, you have to show that you're like a member of a, a specific social group. social group that's being persecuted by the government or by people that the government is failing to stop. And so all of these kids in Guatemala and Honduras, they're saying, you know, I'm getting jumped by gangs. I'm getting pressured to join gangs. And then they get to the U.S. and the U.S. courts say that that's not a recognizable claim because they're not a particular social group they're, that they recognize. They're just kids in Guatemala, and that's everybody, and we can't give everybody asylum. So that's becoming um, a big issue. I don't know, Jasmine. In my opinion, do we have enough categories? We absolutely do. Um, I, I think the way asylum is being interpreted on TV is incorrect. Uh, asylum is when somebody is has a well-founded fear of persecution based on their nationality, religion, um, member uh, member to a social group, and then member to a social group is where you get the amount, most amount of claims. Because what happens is uh, to 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 fit yourself in a social group, you have to you have to prove that a group in your country is being targeted by somebody that the government is not protecting you from and um, that has that social group has to be a, a visible social social group and um, I think there's enough categories uh, I think that people think because you come from a country where there's a lot of crime and it's poor you're granted asylum and that's not the case you have to fit yourself in a social group meaning that you're from a country and for a particular reason, somebody is targeting you, mm -hmm. and therefore your life is in danger. And then, yes, the government will um, 
exercises discretion and in allowing you like a safe haven here in the U.S. So what's really happening in Central America, what you see on TV is we're having a flood of people crossing the border through Mexico. And these people are claiming asylum, but a lot of times these cases are not good asylum cases because they're saying, yes, I fear persecution in my country, but everybody, like Amanda was saying, everybody there is be, you know, is in threat of the gang members. So what we've seen in the past two years in immigration court is a lot of judges are now um, denying these asylum cases from Central America because they cannot prove that they specifically, that specific person is being targeted mm-hmm. for a particular reason. But so then don't there, don't there need to be more categories? How can you say there's already enough categories if these people who are really escaping violence are not able to fit into any of those categories and they're being told they're being denied? Well, that's a whole other assessment on whether we need to be accepting people from dangerous countries. That's true. Okay. Um, the whole the whole basis of asylum is um, we're going to save you because your government can't save you. Um, and so we, we I, maybe we need to redefine or, or ha- have another uh, have another basis for coming into the country. If you're from an extremely dangerous country, um, we'll allow you mm-hmm. like a safe haven here. Um, but asylum is not intended for that asylum is for people who have a well-founded belief of being persecuted and their government will not protect them or cannot protect them. Okay, well, what about cases of conflict? For instance, let's talk about what's happening right now in Syria. I mean, do we have the legal and other capacity to accept people that really need our help at the moment? I mean, nobody wants to be stuck in Syria, I mean, right? We, we can accept people from Syria as as refugees. Refugees is actually distinct from asylees. Um, People who apply for asylum are already here and they're saying, I deserve asylum. Um, If you're a refugee, you have to apply ahead of time from your country. And I think the US has said that they'll they'll accept applications from up to like 100,000 Syrians a year. 10,000, oh, sorry. Only 10,000, that's a little small i think when we're looking at four million people yeah, there's other there's other first world countries there's germany there um they're accepting eight hundred thousand. um mm-hmm. a lot of countries in in europe are accepting more um uh, I, yeah and have to more. accept more yeah and and yeah. are dealing with more even if the refugees don't want to stay there i mean countries that don't even have the capacity to support them they don't want to stay in greece <laughs> But, right. Um, but yeah. but as Amanda was saying, it's very, very important. A lot of people tend to think that uh, being a refugee or um, in asylum are two different statuses. The difference between asylum and, and you know, applying for a res- refugee st- uh, status is that um, asylum is done from the U.S. and mm-hmm. uh, a refugee applies from outside of the country. Um, I think they tend to be far more legitimate cases. Because I think in asylum, there's a lot of abuse. Yeah. You get people from, you know, these Central American countries, and the bottom line is they came in the U.S. because there's no work in their home country. Yeah. But right. um, they're from these countries where asylum cases are being granted at high rates, so they somehow try to shove their way into fitting into a category. You're actually Whereas, applying as a refugee because you have a legitimate claim there we go. as 
a refugee that you're currently being persecuted. Whereas a lot of people will come into this country for economic reasons, as Jasmine was saying, and they're like, how do I get to stay here? And then the asylum is almost like an afterthought. It's like, what else can I claim? Like, and then sometimes they, frankly, they make stuff up. I mean, I don't want to say a lot of people are making stuff up, but, um, a lot of these people do have like a, a legitimate fear, but it's not a recognizable claim under the asylum laws. So they'll stretch whatever their claim is to try to fit it into, into right. asylum. So, yeah. so with people that are in the U.S. claiming asylum and saying they fear particularly, say, gangs and cartels in Central America, and the courts are saying, well, everybody has a fear there, so you're not a member of a special group. Now, how does that work for ex-policemen or a family of policemen? I mean, would they be seen as a special category? I think they are. Yeah, they are. There's a lot of uh, cases coming down recognizing police officers in Central America as mm. targeted groups um, because, again, they, they, they meet these standards of they're, a, they're socially visible. Um, they're a target as a whole. Um, yes, the, those groups exist. If, if, if you claim for asylum under those, you know, i.e. The, the police um, in Central America, uh, those are considered legitimate asylum cases that have a high probability of being approved. Okay, so then going back to refugees. So we have refugees in conflict situations. I mean, there's the International Treaty, I think from 1954, that all countries refer to the Convention of Refugees. So more and more, we're going to see environmental refugees around the world. Increase in stochastic events, and not just in their frequency, but in their intensity. So we might even see in our lifetime, unfortunately, whole Polynesian islands that would be completely wiped out with rise of sea levels. The U.S. does have something that, that's different than asylum and refugee status where they can designate a country for temporary protected status. So if there's a country that has a natural disaster, uh, although really that, that only applies to people already in the U.S. So, for example, people from Honduras who are in the U.S., they can apply for temporary protected status and because of Hurricane Mitch back in, like, I don't know, 2002, mm-hmm. they're still allowed to stay in the U.S., and it gets it gets renewed every couple of years due to, a, like, a further act of Congress. Um, I think they were looking into designating some other countries, maybe, like, even Syria. But that's people who are already in the U.S., and they say, you know, I can't go back to Honduras, I can't go back to Syria, because this happened, and it's just, you know, this country... I can't live in this country because of this natural disaster that happened. And what and, about I mean, people that aren't in the U.S.? I think that you can apply as a refugee. You, yeah, you could apply as like a refugee, I believe so. Um, yeah. But you have to actually be in the U.S. to qualify, to be eligible to apply for temporary protective status. But just going back to what your, your question was, are we well-equipped, our, our, our immigration system? Um, I think for first-world countries... Uh, we have a little bit of an outdated immigration system. Uh, our immigration system is largely uh, a product of 1964 uh, family reunification system. Yeah. And most other first world uh, immigration policy is uh, based off of labor um, and employment. So I do think our, our immigration is system is a bit antiquated. Um, people tend to think that 
if we come through with an immigration reform, that's the end all. If we pass one this year, we won't need an immigration reform for the next 20 years. And that is completely untrue. I mean, immigration policy is like a technology. It's going to be outdated every year. Why? Because circumstances change in other countries. And we live in a, um, in a world where um, our, our economies are, um, are very much affected by uh, how an economy is doing on the other side of the world. So we don't know if tomorrow Mexico is going to have uh, an economic turndown and um, for the next 10 years, we're going to have a big wave of immigration coming from Mexico. We don't know if we're going to have an economic turndown here and nobody's going to want to come here. Maybe it's going to be Australia that's going to be um, the, the country attracting all the immigrants. So there's going to be changes in the world. Are people continually going to want to come to the U.S.? I'd like to think that as long as our economy stays good. Um, but... Immigration has, you know, it's, 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 you can't talk about history without talking about immigration, it's how people got around the world. It's going to continue to happen. It's just going to be for different countries. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's largely dependent on the, the economic situation in each country. All right. So let's talk a bit about labor. Let's move on to labor. So there are multiple categories for persons to come in with respect to labor. And then also there's the free trade agreements, which allow some people to come in without being particularly sponsored. Now, you're saying that the system is antiquated. Is that because we cannot handle, for, for instance, say we need a surplus of nurses. Can we change the system very quickly to allow more nurses to come in in one, any one year to allow for the fact that we need nurses and we have a surplus of you know, other workers and so we're not going to accept visas for you know whatever the surplus that we have is so we can accept more nurses no i mean that's i mean that's the problem because the quotas for a lot of these employment visas have been set over 30 40 years ago and they they don't get changed based on fluctuating needs um, so that becomes a, a huge problem, especially for U.S. employers who need a lot more nurses. They they really can't. It's not that immigrants are taking jobs. It's that U.S. employers really can't find the people to fill these positions, and they get their hands tied by uh, these immigration quotas that have been set at a time when conditions were very different. That's a huge problem. Yeah, I think you're touching on a lot of... Um the debate on immigration reform because uh, unfortunately the way immigration is portrayed on TV is they people get really passionate about people crossing the US-Mexican border and um, I always tell people you can't analyze immigration policy without analyzing the labor market because immigration and employment go hand in hand people immigrate because they're looking for a job or people want people to immigrate in their country because they're trying to fill a job that's unfilled in this country. So in the past 40 years, we've created something called a high-skilled visa. It's an H-1B. And there's another low-skilled visa for um, workers. It's called skilled and unskilled workers. You don't need a bachelor's degree. It's uh, people in the agricultural industry uh, mainly use it. The that's called that's our low skilled worker worker visa. It's the H two B. But the problem is, it's a very complicated visa. It's very hard to get. Um, 
the, just the procedure involved to, to do it. A lot, a lot of employers just can't even afford to go through the procedure. It's very antiquated visa. Again, it makes it very difficult for employers to actually try to bring people on the low-skilled um, visa. And then we have uh, another outdated high-skilled visa that was you know, more shaped around policy in the 1990s, the H-1B. And the reason I think it's outdated is because um, if you look at, if you take the temperature of the U.S. market right now, uh, technology, um, science, engineering, those are the areas in our in our economy where we are desperately looking for people to fill positions. Um, but on these H-1Bs, we can have lawyers from Europe or marketing directors or creative directors from Europe coming and using these limited amount of H-1Bs that are allocated each year. So we essentially have an engineer competing for uh, a European lawyer's H-1B. And that's just silly because you're not now handing out um, visas based on what the U.S. economy's need is. It's, it's again, it's, it's on these antiquated laws. And um, you never hear about that in immigration debate um, because people just focus, like, on the border, the U.S.-Mexican border. Right. Do you think that it's not going to progress anytime soon? No one is looking at how to uh, solve the issue of limiting the quotations and saying, okay, every year we're going to look at what we need or every two years and then we're going to base the quotations. So more nurses, less marketing directors, less foreign lawyers. Um, I mean, when President Obama did announce immigration reform back in November 2014, there were some memos issued that said, we're going to look at this, we're going to try to issue new memos, we're going to try to issue new laws. Um, but all that's on hold now because the, the entire immigration reform has been challenged. So really, that, that doesn't seem to be going forward right now. It's, it's something's on paper, and I don't, I don't see anything changing soon. Democrats and Republicans, the only area in immigration policy that both of them are in agreement is when it comes to business immigration. And, and when I say business, I'm talking about these employment visas. Both sides of the aisles have recognized that that area needs to change. But there's this other area of immigration, the family aspect of immigration, which is what you hear 80% of the time on TV. And really from an, an immigration per attorney's perspective, these are two completely different areas of immigration and one overshadows the other. And it's the family immigration part that um, Democrats and, and Republicans cannot come to agreement on. Um, What's the disagreement I, there? The disagreement is Democrats um, are more pre-legalization. Uh, 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 they want to create a pathway to citizenship if you're illegal here in the U.S., uh, whereas Republicans, Republicans are saying, oh, oh no, that's, that's amnesty and you're going to encourage thousands more Mexicans to come in that we can't handle and they're going to steal American, you know, the usual lines about they're going to steal American jobs. And I think that's mostly when, when the lay person, when the average American hears stuff about immigration, they're thinking of that too. And their, their fear factor goes up and they're not even listening. And so right. that's part of why a lot of politicians um, don't even really pursue immigration reform because even though there's this huge need for reform, especially with, with employment visas, especially for high-skilled, high-tech workers, it's just 
it's hard to even engage in a national conversation on that when the average voter is just like just thinking of, of you know, Mexicans, or... Yeah. Sorry, I keep talking about Mexicans. <laughs> right, right. No, but speaking of the border and this fear is two separate things. Like, the people that have uh, that are already here and what they need, and then the border security issues, they conflate that, right? In, in yeah, the they, media. that's the problem, is they can't get past that topic, you know? They, as soon as you bring up the border, what's the first thing everybody gets passionate about? Oh, this wall that they want to build on the border. So you can't even talk to them about how a lot of our companies uh, on the West Coast specifically in the tech industry, you know, they can't grow because they can't fill their engineering positions. You know, nobody talks about that. Everybody wants to talk about the, the wall. What about the people that are already here, like you said? I mean, they're, I guess the idea is that giving any help to the people that are already here maybe encourages further immigration. But the reality is there are a lot of people here, many of whom were brought as children, um, who need who need a path to, to be citizens, to be, you know, functioning members of American society. So let's talk about people that came here as children and then say that they either commit a crime or something happens where they, they're found to be undocumented and they're liable for deportation. And the executive has the tool of the stay of prosecution. So let's talk about whether you've had any personal experience with stays of prosecution and your opinion as to how the executive is currently using the stay of prosecution and what what is the choice these people are faced with? Is it deportation or absolutely no rights? Pretty much it, because the, the prosecutorial discretion, um, I have helped several clients get prosecutorial discretion, um, but then that does not actually come with any type of a work permit. So it's, it's a very strange thing that the government is saying, oh yeah, you can stay here, but you can't work, you can't support yourself, and we're just going to look the other way for a couple of years. But if you do anything else, then we'll, we'll for sure deport you. Like, it's it's a very strange policy. I think it's a good policy um, for some people to be able to stay here. And actually, the um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals that was implemented in 2012, that's actually a form of prosecutorial discretion um, where children who came to the U.S. under the age of 16 can apply. But that comes with a work permit. When you apply under um, DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, you can you can apply and get a work permit. Um, but people who are granted prosecutorial discretion in removal proceedings don't have any right to a work permit. So it's it's giving them. Um, and can they apply later on if anything changes in their situation, or are they permanently denied unless the law changes? If, if the law changes, then they could apply, but. I, I don't know. I mean, the there was proposed something similar to DACA, but for parents of, of U.S. citizen children. But that, again, is being held up because of the, the court challenges to uh, President Obama's immigration reforms. So if that changed, a lot of the people who currently... Actually, what we were seeing was the courts, although they weren't able to get... Um, deferred action under the Obama reform, it seems like a lot of courts were just granting prosecutorial discretion in removal proceedings. Um, but again, 
they don't have any right to a work permit unless the law changes. Hmm. It goes it goes back to what I was saying earlier is you can't you can't create immigration policy without taking them, you know, labor employment into consideration. Um, you know, the government considers this a tool. Well, if you think of a tool, a tool is meant to fix something. It's supposed to resolve an issue. Prosecutorial discretion doesn't really resolve an issue. It just says to the to the person that's being granted prosecutorial discretion, okay, um, if you're in deportation proceedings, we're no longer going to uh, proceed with your deportation. So we're going to let you go, and we're going to close your case. Um, we're going to let you go without a with without a work permit. And if you do something wrong, then we'll deport you. Mm-hmm. But look at now what the position you just put that person in. You're being allowed to stay in the U.S. with no work authorization, but you're somehow not supposed to be a welfare to the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a catch twenty two. It's now you're putting somebody out there. Okay, go. Don't don't come to me for for help. Um, but we're not going to give you the the tool you need to get a job to take care of yourself. So. Now what are you doing? You're almost encouraging unauthorized um, employment, uh-huh. and um, or uh, a lot of a lot of people don't realize this, but once you're out of status, the only way you can get back in status is if you marry a U.S. citizen. And there's all these waivers that you have to go through. It's it's a very um, narrow topic in immigration. So you're you're sitting there telling the person, okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna let you go in the hopes that maybe one day immigration policy will change, <laughs> or mm-hmm. number two that you get married to a U.S. citizen. But now you're but essentially wink, saying, "Wink, you're not supposed to do that." Yeah, that's uh, yeah. fraud. If it's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be, you know. So it's it's called. You never tool. know. You find love. You know. That's, that's what everybody says. <laughs> but am I gonna say it's bad? It's I mean it's better than just deporting some of right. these people. I, I've actually used prosecutorial discretion in a case uh, yeah. where where it was given as an option, um, and it was it was a 16 year old boy um, where his mother his his father was out of the picture. Um, his mother was here in the U.S. working and sending him back money. Um, he crossed the border with his uncle. He was detained, and there he was put in deportation proceedings. And I requested prosecutorial discretion. Um, and he was granted it. In, in that instance, yeah, do I did I find it a tool on the defense side? Absolutely, because what's his other option? Being sent to El Salvador, where neither one of his parents are living. Um, but this is a tool that the government created. So I I would like to think it has a different means to an end. Um, I didn't. I don't know what they were. What what the you know, the creators of this specific tool had in mind? Well, it's actually, I mean, it's specifically to save government resources. So sometimes as an immigration lawyer, you get put in a very strange position where the government is offering you prosecutorial discretion. They're almost trying to push it on you because that gets the case off their hands. They can wash their hands of your client. But if your client is eligible for anything else, for asylum, for cancellation of removal... Um, maybe they're married to a U.S. citizen, they can get a green card that way. You have to continue fighting and say, no, we're not taking prosecutorial discretion because right. that that leaves your client nowhere. So you have to pursue whatever other option they have. Um, and, and so it's weird sometimes. The government will offer it to you, and I'm like, you know, what are you thinking? Like, why why are you trying to push this on me? Right. They They can close the case, 
save resources. And also when they don't want to deport people and they don't have the legislative ability to change the law, I suppose it's the only way the executive can prevent deportations that they don't agree with. But just going back to what Jasmine was saying before, that you can't look at immigration without looking at employment. So while both federal and most state employment laws protect undocumented workers, it is difficult to entice workers to claim against their employers for fear of their status being uncovered. Practically, then, it has largely the same effect as if they weren't protected under the Fair Labor Standards Act and various state laws. And that's leaving aside that many undocumented workers work in agriculture and that the Migrant and Seasonal Worker Agricultural Protection Act has less protections than covered employees under the FLSA. If undocumented workers are not protected in practice, even if on paper, then no worker is protected because employers will hire undocumented workers in order to assure labor laws and all workers will in practice have less rights. This is why I was saying um, earlier when we're talking about prosecutorial discretion is you are increasing the uh, pool of people that are uh, working without authorization and that's very dangerous to the American worker as Mm -hmm. well. And again, if you want to modernize, if we want to practice um, good labor standards, you cannot have a big pool of undocumented workers. Yeah, and it's like the government is accepting that we're going to have a big pool of undocumented workers as if they want a subservient labor force in a way, (laughs) right? It's either a very glaring unintended consequence of a very myopic policy or there's something a little more subversive that's happening. Well, but, it, here's something um, interesting from history on immigration. In the ni- early 1980s, when uh, Reagan... Um, oh, everybody's favorite president. Reagan, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, but you'll never believe what one of his his uh, solutions were to, to an issue is. Oh. His theory, and I think it's actually... Okay, so his theory is um, he wanted to pass this amnesty with the condition that going forward anybody who hired somebody that was undocumented would be you know that was considered a criminal act right so the whole idea is like do bite the hand that feeds you right so the the problem is with this piece of legislation is the republicans in congress they hated it because it put a lot you know uh, an incredible liability on business owners. And that was Reagan's approach to how to decrease the pool of undocumented workers. Cause the whole idea is that if you don't give, um, workers, uh, I, I'm sorry, if you don't have jobs available in the U S who's going to immigrate because remember people immigrate for jobs, right? And if you go after the employer, and you make it a criminal act to hire these undocumented people, now you've just created a scenario that there are no jobs to immigrate into the U.S., so now you don't have to put up that wall. Mm. And so the problem was when it got to Congress, everybody was pro-business. They said, oh, my God, like, you know, how are we going to keep business owners? How are we going to impose this, you know, this new regulation on business owners? Right. Knowing that everybody breaks the law, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so it was sort of like the conservative parties, um, you know, you're talking two ways, you know, (laughs) one way you don't want undocumented people, but then, you know, 
on this way that I thought was very creative by um, Reagan, um, y- you don't want to support it either. Right. Okay, so we have the I-9 though, right? Every employer yeah. has to obtain from a taxpayer to show that they can legally work in the United States. So employers just don't file I-9s. And is there no enforcement of this? I mean, how are they getting away with it? There there are I-9 audits, but mostly of, of big employers. That's why you'll find a lot of large companies, they have a lot of policies in place where they, they really do check everybody's work permits. But not everybody works for a big company. I mean, there's a whole shadow labor market. There's a lot of small companies. And there's a lot of people that just don't check. They don't care. Or maybe they see a fake document and they don't look too far into it. Right. And, and what are the the penalties? So the, here's the th- what are the penalties of not abiding the, the I-9? Yeah. If you have like an I-9 audit and they find that you violated, I, I honestly, I don't know what the penalties. They're fines, but I don't know how high they are. And I think that for some large companies, some of that might even be considered the cost of doing business because huh. I think the penalties are too, they're not going to put anybody out of business. I mean, but here's the thing about um, undocumented workers with big businesses. You really don't see a lot of undocumented uh, workers working for major businesses. Um, You see undocumented workers at mid-size to small businesses. It's small businesses, but it's also lower skilled labor, correct? It's all, yeah, it's it's low skilled labor. It's exactly like you just said. But here's the thing about the I-9. The I-9 was created to try to, um, again, another tool to decrease the pool of undocumented workers. But the actual practices of it is um, you can you can use a fake social security number. That happens all the time. Yeah. There is a system that's provided for free from the government for an employer to go on the website and verify that that person is actually who they say they are, and to see if they you know they have work authorization or not. But that's not mandatory. That's a suggestion. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of people don't even know about it. Well, yeah, exactly. You, you tell some employers to e-verify. They're like, what's that? And then another thing is business owners, um, when they review the I-9, just so long as they had uh, in the reasonable impression that it was correct, mm-hmm. they've met the requirements for complying with the I-9. Yeah. So um, that's a really low threshold. They're not required to do any due diligence. Um, they're not required to you know, check and see if uh, this person really does exist or not. They just simply have to look at the form. Was it filled out properly? Do I have reason to believe that this person is telling me what they are? Well, if you're a restaurant in Hell's Kitchen and every other restaurant around you is paying their cleaners $7 an hour and you want to increase your profit margin, then what are you going to do when somebody fills out an I-9 and it looks reasonably filled out and, um, uh, you know... Of course, you're just gonna be like, "Yeah, well, okay, great." Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's except it's... that the FLSA and New York labor law would protect the workers in Hell's Kitchen, but then not many employers know that. And then again, many employees, particularly employees that may not understand English well, may not know that either. Undocumented workers have these same rights as documented workers, and some courts have even stated that when undocumented workers make claims against their employer, you can tack on a retaliation claim against that employer for calling immigration enforcement. Now, of course, if the employer calls immigration enforcement, well, they're essentially self-incriminating themselves for hiring undocumented workers. 
so then it would go doubly against them. However, even with these protections, what has been your experience with your clients and their relation to their work conditions? I have a lot of clients that they, I, they talk to me, they tell me they put up with a lot of things in their work because they know they're undocumented. Um, and that's really their only goal in coming to me sometimes is not even to get legal status, not even to get a green card. It's just for me to find a way for them to get a work permit somehow that they can at least show their employer once and get a better job. Um, I have heard anecdotally about like undocumented workers joining in. Sometimes they do class action lawsuits for like back wages from employers. Yeah, uh, they, they're entitled to do that. Yeah. So I, I know some undocumented workers, like they'll, they'll be willing to be a plaintiff in a class action lawsuit where they don't feel like they're being singled out. They're not the only person saying this. Um, but, but mostly I don't think that undocumented workers avail themselves of, of labor laws at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I used to work at a firm with an FLSA attorney and, um, we were shocked, you know, being an immigration attorney, one of the questions I would ask them is, is their employment, um, and you know, how they're treated at work and so, and so, and, um, you know, I spoke with the FLSA attorney on a couple cases and I would say 90% of the people that we spoke to on consultations had no idea what the FLSA was. They had no idea that they even had protection. Um, and even when we did, you know, inform them that they in fact did, then you now have to get over the hurdle of now we're exposing you to the legal system and to them that's a threat. Yeah. Which they, which they might not want to take, right? Because they'd rather stay in the U.S. than get yeah, back I mean, wages. Take, yeah, you, you take a mom um, who has two U.S. citizen children, been in this country for, let's say, 15 years. There's no way she wants to, her to be exposed to risk of being deported. And even though there are mechanisms in the, you know, in litigation to protect this person, these people are just so fearful. Well, they would deport a mother of two U.S. citizen children. So um, they would they orphan U.S. citizens, basically, in, in effect. Yeah, you, you are, um, you can get into deportation proceedings. Yeah. There are mechanisms, you know, there are forms of relief that you can apply for when you have U.S. citizen children that will cancel the deportation. Mm. Well, so immigrants fear when they really shouldn't fear because they've been so abused at work, right? <laughs> that when somebody is telling them, well, now I'm going to bring you to the to this wonderful justice system that we have in America, which if they've ever been in detention, I mean, is it a really wonderful justice system when people are applying for asylum and we put them into essentially prison? And this is a common thing when we go to immigration court, when I'm sitting around with the attorneys there. there there's two immigration courts. There's uh, an immigration court for people that are being detained. Um, and then there's the immigration proceedings for people that are being non-detained. And when you're in the court where they're being detained, yeah, you know, these people that are being uh, charged with immigration um, uh, charges, they come out in these, like, orange jumpers, they have shackles, chains, yeah. shackles. Um, like, they've gone out and murdered something or something. And that is a common... Um, criticism immigration court gets from outside people 
And um, when you go into the detention centers to see your client, it's essentially the same as going to federal prison. Um, and I know that because I used to do some criminal cases and it's the same, it's the same doorways, the same procedure. It takes an hour to see your client because you have to go through all these criminal gate, you know, all these protection. Um, and yeah, you do ask yourself, why, why do we spend so much money on, um, on, on this process where people cross the border? It's not even that. I was put in a detention center for one night. Um, it, oh was, <laughs> it was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I presented at the border wanting a visa waiver, but I was given incorrect advice that I could have an unpaid internship for two, under a visa waiver, but I needed, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, exactly, so then they, um, yeah, they, they put me into Elizabeth, and apparently the procedure is the same as whether you're going to be there five years, or whether you're going to be there one night, and it's not pretty, so I was extremely frightened, how is it like the people that are there waiting for us, they're fleeing something so horrible in their own countries, and then they're waiting in a detention center, that's, that's essentially a prison. And, and how much are they paying these private entities to run these terrible facilities? I don't, I don't know. I don't know the cost of these facilities. Um, that is, there's a lot of um, lawsuits against the federal government because um, I guess these private facilities along the border, uh, you know, there's some things that are going on there. You know, there's rape, there's molestation. Um, there is abuse in other forms, and um, you are seeing these lawsuits uh, against these these entities. But well, good. Exist, but again, you're you're dealing with people who don't know what their rights are. Right. Um, they don't, you know, under the laws of the U.S., they don't technically have rights because. You know, they're not citizens and or they're not they, living here. They do have some due process rights. It's just that they hardly ever get enforced and they can't get a lawyer to enforce them. I, right. I mean, I think there's some statistic about people who are detained, like something like 85% don't have counsel and it's hard for them to get counsel because how are they going to go meet with a lawyer and pay them and look through right, the Right, they, they don't have the right to paid counsel, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, look, even even for us as pro, we're we're both private attorney, mm-hmm. private immigration attorneys, it's just as equally as frustrating for us yeah. because deportation cases are not cheap to fight. Um, and and I would go as far as saying that if you're in the private practice, uh, you have to be running some business model to be really making you know, um, being competitive with other private practices and. It's largely because these are people that don't have money to begin with. So it's now you pose the question about um, representation and, and how that is uh, intertwined with your economic situation. Yeah. Let's move on to state action on immigration. Although immigration is a federal power and state laws cannot conflict with a proper federal power or purpose under the supremacy clause of the Constitution, States, increasingly frustrated by federal inaction on immigration, have been taking the reins. The most infamous example in recent years has been Arizona's SB 1070, of which its most offensive terms did not survive federal challenge, but numerous states have enacted immigration-related bills in the past two years, some denying and restricting rights to undocumented immigrants and some providing rights. 
such as the ability to get a driver's license. One recent bill here in California is AB 20. This bill will provide legal state residency to undocumented workers in the agricultural industry, an industry that is vital to the state and heavily reliant on undocumented workers. How do you view the state's ability to enact these laws And do you think that it conflicts with the federal government's authority? Further, do you see states continuing to make immigration-related laws in the future? I mean, I can definitely see the Republican argument that it's, or the conservative argument that it's a huge federal issue, because if you have individual states offering protections, then somebody hears about that and they come to California specifically for that. And then they can go anywhere in the country after that. And so you've got you've got a lot of more undocumented workers, you know, traveling throughout the U.S. There's no reason why they're going to stay in California. So what? that becomes something where the, the federal government is going to say, um, you know, this is an interstate issue. And if you're encouraging uh, immigration, you know, we got to smack you down there. Here's the thing is you were saying like, is is this just going to keep on happening? And okay. If we look at immigration policy in the 1900s, um, there was major policy movement in the 1920s, 1910, 1920s, um, again in the 1950s, 1964, and then 1980 in the early 1980s, early 1990s, 2001, and now we're at 2016. It's been about 15 years since we've had anything really major happen in immigration. And when I say major, that's like, um, like I said before, is immigration is like the tech industry, is you have to continually um, modernize your laws because uh, the labor market is changing, uh, our, our culture is changing, whatnot, is the longer you go without changes being made to the immigration policy, the more you're going to see states try to take things in their hand mm-hmm. to try to resolve issues as a result of the federal government not trying to modernize immigration policy. So I think that the longer the government continues to go with um, the continuing immigration policy, it is no doubt in my mind that the states are going to take things into their own hands and try to address the issues themselves. So yeah, it's going to keep, it's going to keep happening. So last question from your practice in immigration, if I gave you somehow complete power to make one change in immigration law and policy right now, do you really find most frustrating that you would like to change in immigration policy? For me, it would be um, to start whether it's our government, um, or the U.S. Department of Labor working more with immigration, I would like to see immigration being evaluated, creative policy, such looking at our employment needs and focusing on immigration as employment rather than um, the border. Is, is when we start talking about immigration we should start talking about our market. Where do we need um, people to fill positions? And where do we not need? Um, So I I would like to see the U.S. Department of Labor and Immigration working more together to make that happen. Okay. So then in in that respect, if we need more nurses, we'll we'll easily be able to increase the quota for nurses. And if we have a surplus of, say, ski instructors, decrease that. So Amanda, what do you find most frustrating and what would you change if you 
had this wand? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess uh, along similar lines to be able to uh, adjust the quotas more quickly. Um, but one way to do that possibly would be to to get rid of some of these family preference categories where people can petition for their brother or their sister or mm-hmm. um, all of their children and they can bring their whole family over that way. I mean, maybe it sounds a little bit harsh, but I don't know why we're letting everybody bring in their brother and sister as, and then like stopping high tech workers from coming in. So maybe like if more quotas could be given, you know, based on labor as opposed to these sometimes tenuous family connections where people figure out that they can get their foot in the door and then petition for their whole family. Um, it takes many years, but, but, but they can do it and people have figured it out and it's, it's kind of a strange priority to let people bring their brother or sister, but not, uh, you know, a computer programmer. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so very much, Jasmine and Amanda, for being on Gravity. Thank you for your time. Gravity. Thank you. you. And hopefully we shall see you back soon. Yes. That was the end of our podcast for today. I hope you found the discussion informative and will join us next time. Thanks for listening and enjoy your day.